Welcome to Beyond Wall Street, presented by Arixa Capital, where expert investors make their unique investment strategies easy to understand. I'm your host, Jan Bresky, and today I'm with Glenn Solomon, managing partner of GGV Capital. We'll be discussing venture capital investing globally. Glenn, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and for being available to explain your business and venture capital in general, which I think is a difficult type of investment for most people to to understand how it works. So it's going to be exciting to, to hear what you have to say. So for starters, can you maybe explain your career background and how did you get into venture capital? So Jan, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here uh, and love what you're doing at Arixa Capital. Um, my uh, my history with venture capital, uh, I've been in the VC industry now for 25 years. Um, I Prior to that, I was at Stanford Business School. And prior to that, uh, out of college, I held a couple of jobs in the financial industry. You and I first met back in our Wall Street days at Goldman Sachs uh, many moons ago. And uh, I also worked at a private equity firm uh, learning uh, to invest prior to going to business school, but really VC now for the last 25 years. And tell us about GGV Capital and what you do. So at GGV, we invest on behalf of our investors, who tend to be larger institutions, in startups that are uh, founded by people who are trying to build companies of substantial value. We help them grow with the hopes of helping them fulfill on their dreams and ultimately anticipating exits down the road that will help pay return back to our investors. So your firm invests in venture capital across a variety of different parts of venture capital and also geographies. Can you explain that a little bit? So the business of venture capital has um, industrialized as more and more uh, entrants have come into the market. And so specialization is really important. Here at GGV Capital, our focus is um, not on stage, which others, some other firms are focused on. So we are a multi-stage firm. We do seed investing, Series A, Series B. That's, that's where we tend to focus in that earlier stage arena, but we can then scale with the companies that we invest in. Uh, our latest fund is two and a half billion. So we have plenty of capital to invest in companies as they continue to grow. Uh, our focus is not geographic either. We have um, uh, about a hundred people in our firm and we are investing actively in many regions of the world, uh, certainly the US, uh, but also Latin America, Southeast Asia, Asia more generally. Israel, these are all markets that we're active in, and we have, uh, in many cases, feet on the street. Um, our focus is much more on vertical markets. And so um, as a team, we have three or four areas that we're always focused on. One is enterprise, and that's where I spend most of my time. And that's been a very hot segment over the past couple of years with the emergence of cloud uh, as, as a real driver of growth and innovation. Uh, consumer is another big effort for us globally, uh, and there certainly has been a lot of uh, activity there, and the pandemic has had a huge impact on how consumers um, you know, make choices and acquire services and products. Uh, and then we have uh, an area that we call smart tech, which you could think of as where uh, hardware and software meet. 
And so things like robotics and drones um, and, you know, uh, technology that incorporates artificial intelligence are areas that we invest in at a smart tech. So that's how we focus uh, much more on vertical and industry subsegment than we do on either stage or geo. So that's interesting. You have a quite a large fund, but you also do early stage investing. So I'm guessing one of the advantages you offer is that you can scale with your clients fairly quickly and back up your first investment with a larger second one and maybe even a larger third one. Is that is that one of the ways that you win business from the best companies? We are in a very competitive market. Um, we have good competitors who are also chasing the very best entrepreneurs, going after big opportunities, just like we are. Definitely having a large fund helps. If we're going up against a smaller fund, one of the things we can do is give some assurance to the founders that we can be there for the long term. And most companies, when they raise an initial round, are not thinking that's the end of the road. They're really thinking long-term, which is quite attractive to us, that they want to go and build something big. But when you know when building something big, oftentimes you need many multiple rounds over time uh, and, and subsequent capital, and we can help fund that. Um, we also do other things, though, to compete. Uh, and so... You know, we've invested heavily at GGB in, for example, what we call a platform services team. And so we have people on staff who are helping our portfolio companies hire people uh, and train their managers to be effective in their roles. Um, we have resources that help with business development. So getting customers and building uh, pipelines for, um, you know, the business, depending on what category they're, they're playing in. We have people that help with marketing and communications because a big challenge for startups is getting the word out about what they're doing. These are all things that uh, we try to differentiate on and we lean heavily on the founders in which we've already invested, where we've added value uh, to help sell our, the next set of founders uh, on working with us. So what do you look for in an investment I guess, let's say uh, more of the early stage, because I'm guessing most of your later stage investments are with companies that you already got to know earlier. So what have you learned over your two plus decades of doing this are the key things to look for that, that correlate with success? Definitely the number one thing we look for is the strength in the founding team. Um, you know, it can get easy to think of investing as a paper and, paper and pencil and kind of quantitative numeric exercise. But in reality, even large businesses, certainly in technology, are really just groups of people. And so um, those who found a company are very much responsible for who ends up getting recruited in to be part of the team, what kind of culture is established, um, the goals, uh, and, and um, like sort of the ethic in the company that's set up. These are all things that really emanate from the founders. So we, we look for very, very high quality founders who have ambition and drive and want to build something big, who also have an endemic understanding of the market that they're going after. Um, and so can be two, three, four moves ahead on the chessboard than anybody else. Um, these are, you know, people are not born with these skills. Uh, they're learned. Uh, some of them are innate. And so it's, it's difficult to find um, you know, great founders, but when we do, we're all in on that. So that's one thing we really look for and probably the leading and most important thing. Then we're also looking for markets in which we think um, there's an opportunity to build a really big company. Um, the good news is we focus on information technology and that market generally has just exploded globally 
And so there are lots of pockets of opportunity. Oftentimes though, when you invest in something in a, in a founder early, that founder, she or he, sometimes will be going after a market that many are skeptical about, many think are too small. Um, but the founder usually has an understanding of what is going to happen in the future that could make that market bigger. And that's what makes our job both hard and fun and interesting is trying to anticipate the future um, because we're not investing and uh, expecting the world to stand still. When we invest, the world keeps moving on and these investments take five to 10 years to kind of germinate. And so we really need to think about where the world is going. And then we also spend time thinking about, in addition to team and market, we'll look at technology. There are some companies um, who have you know, some unfair competitive advantage starting their business, whether it be um, you know, some core intellectual property or um, some distribution relationship that's been established that's really unique and enduring. And, and you know, so we will, we will spend time trying to understand what will make a business unique and defensible over time as well. So those, those are some of the things we look for. So uh, big tech has emerged in the last 10 years, and it, sometimes it seems as if Google and Facebook and Salesforce are sort of absorbing, and Microsoft are absorbing all these opportunities, and they have an unfair advantage. And yet now it seems like it's kind of boom times for venture capital at the same time. So what's, what's happening with that? Is big tech taking away the opportunities from entrepreneurial companies or are there just as many opportunities as ever? There are more opportunities now than ever. And big tech is trying to take opportunity away from small companies. Of course, that's natural. They're looking to expand their own markets. Um, so this is an age old question. Um, it's sort of a same circus with different clowns maybe, you know, like I remember when I started in venture capital, the big question was, What's Microsoft going to do? What's IBM going to do? Can you compete with them? And nowadays, uh, at least in enterprise investing, you have to ask a lot about what, what Microsoft is doing. So they're back. Uh, certainly what Amazon and AWS are doing and what Google is going to do. So some of the names have changed. Some remain the same. But the question still persists. How do you, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, build a company that, uh, achieves what you want to achieve while fending off potential competition from larger players. Um, the good news is that focus, we proved time and time again, uh, is a very powerful weapon when going up against even bigger companies with more capital and moving fast, moving with alacrity um, and clear vision uh, oftentimes can be uh, ex extremely effective. And um, we do have examples where larger companies have come in and really made life difficult for startups, but I'd say that's more the exception than the rule. Interesting. So the opportunity is as big as ever or bigger from what you're saying. I think so. I like to say that every company in the world now has become a software company. And we can see that across every industry, every company size, every geography. Um, it's just becoming more and more important that you lead with a digital presence um, and satisfy your customers' needs in that way. Companies as far and wide as like Home Depot, who you wouldn't think of as a, certainly as a software company, they have more software engineers writing more software at Home Depot than any of our startups today. Nike has, uh, is hiring more software developers than they are shoe designers. 
Domino's Pizza is a fun example. Over the last uh, decade, that stock has outperformed Google. And uh, although I'm fond of pizza, I wouldn't say that Domino's Pizza has gotten any better over the last 10 years. What's driven that stock price has been the fact that they've moved from being a uh, an offline company taking phone calls to a digital company, a software business, where they take upwards of 80% of their orders on the dominoes.com or their app. It's become a global game. And that's great for companies building technologies and tools for companies to embrace technology because you, you just, you're, you're selling to an audience that now reaches across all four corners of the globe. And as a result, like markets have gotten bigger. And that's why I think the opportunity has never been larger. In a VC fund, I remember the old numbers were that many of the firms would fail, a few of them would break even, and then you'd have one out of so many that was a home run. Is it still like that? Or how, how, do, how do you model how a portfolio of investments will, will make money overall? I suspect our investors, our limited partners, our LPs, do that modeling, but we do not. Um, we have to go into every opportunity, every portfolio company, every investment we make. We have to, we're, we're rigorous in trying to understand how can this become the next great moonshot and how big could it be? And can it deliver at least, you know, 5X or 10X or 20X back to our fund? Um, that's the fundamental question we're asking ourselves every day as we make new investments. We don't think about things as a portfolio, we think about every company as an individual snowflake that has the opportunity to become great. Now, over time, when looking backwards, it is true that some achieve amazing potential even more than we thought they could, and some achieve solid results, and some do fail. Uh, but if we start with that assumption uh, and invest that way, I suspect we'd end up with lots more failures than we typically have. So we really think about every company bottoms up, how can they be successful? Can you say in general terms, out of 10 investments, how many of them in a typical fund are profitable? It's a matter of fact that in 2020, for example, GGV had 11 of our portfolio companies went public. Uh, now, that's not the only way we exit, uh, but it is a significant way to exit. And that gives you an example of, you know, if we're investing in 20 or 30 companies a year, and we had 11 go public last year, um, that's a pretty good ratio. Those are companies we invested in over the last several many years. Um, but if we continue to have those kinds of numbers, we're have, you know, our, our batting average is, is quite good. We'll take that, uh, that kind of performance any day. Now, it's not always going to be that good. And it is true that if you look across most funds, it may be that 20% of the investments drive 80% of the returns um, per fund. Of course, as I mentioned, we're shooting for 100% doing well. Um, but then when you look backwards, after all said and done, it, you never get them all right. Outcomes are um, difficult to predict. And there are some that can become very sizable over time. For an individual or family that hasn't invested in the VC area before, mm. what, how should they think about investing in, in that asset class? VC as an asset class, I think, is probably deserving of being in any sophisticated investors, you know, overall diversified portfolio. Um, but I want to be realistic about it. It is, it's very dangerous to generalize because 
every VC firm has a different strategy, different capabilities, and um, a different you know history of of returns. The work I've seen done on the industry from an academic level suggests that there's a huge difference in expected return for, for example, a, a fund that that uh, tends to perform in the top quartile versus a fund that tends to perform at median or certainly bottom quartile. Um, and, and so you could say, oh, well, I'm just going to invest in top quartile funds. Well, those, not surprisingly, are the hardest to access. Um, and also things change over time. So a top performing fund in one vintage or two vintages may not maintain that level of performance over time if there's team shifts or politics get in the way or strategies change, et cetera. And as we mentioned earlier in technology, the markets always change. And so if firm doesn't change along with it, there can be real problems. Uh, so that makes things tough. And then a second thing that makes things difficult is there, there is no uh, barrier to entry or very low barriers to entry in our business. So you'll see lots of new funds come in, uh, maybe to pursue a specific strategy. And so it's difficult if you're just a, um, a casual investor in the space or would like to invest in the space, some, some relatively small amount of capital to figure out how you get diversification or if not, where you wanna kind of lay your bets, if you will. Um, and so all those things need to be considered when you're thinking about the VC asset class. Is VC investing correlated or uncorrelated with traditional investments? If you had to say one or the other, or is it sort of midway in between? So one thing that's true about most VC funds, the gestation periods are pretty long from the time of investment to the time of realization. Um, and there are interim marks along the way, for sure. And so you can kind of get some sense for how the portfolio is performing over time based on what other people are paying to you know, invest in subsequent rounds of a company that is in a portfolio. But um, exits take take time. Exits take time. Um, so whereas at GGV, we might invest a fund over the course of two to three years. Um, it's probably another eight to 10 after the investment period that we're really finishing up exiting those companies. And so by definition, they're kind of not correlated to the market at any one specific point in time. Um, I think that when exiting, there is some correlation to where technology stocks are um, and how technology is performing because the, the more that technology companies are doing well, the more appetite they have to acquire uh, companies out of VC portfolios, the better investors are doing with their public portfolios of technology stocks, the more they have an appetite for new IPOs. So there is some correlation there, but at the time we're investing versus the time we'll be thinking about exiting, there's so much of a gap in between that it's very difficult to know what those environments will look like. Okay, let's switch gears for a moment. Uh, you're based in Silicon Valley, but you invest globally. Do you feel like, like the formula that helped California thrive through our entire lives, is that is that fundamentally still in place, or are you seeing are you seeing things that are really changing, such that that's being disruptive, and it may and 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 the best opportunities won't be here, and the best talent won't be here in the future? Silicon Valley remains uh, a nexus of innovation, um, and there there are and will continue to be a number of 
great startup companies that get launched, you know, out of the valley, if you will. But what we're seeing is that the nexus of where companies are getting created and then where they're getting built has changed dramatically. Um, and so while it, it's almost these days, it, it's very commonplace for tech companies in particular to hire globally um, and leave people where they are. Um, because if you're looking for software developers, for example, you know, you may, the best ones may be in Ukraine, they may be in St. Louis, they may be in Singapore, they could really be anywhere. And so, you know, where is a company really located? In some cases, it becomes hard to tell because maybe the founders live in Silicon Valley, but maybe there's a development team in, uh, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina, and then a growing team in Latin America, um, and perhaps, you know, distribution being built in Europe and Asia. Uh, that happens all the time. And so I think California, uh, and, and in particular, the Bay Area has spawned other markets, other pockets of innovation. Um, LA has certainly become one. Uh, you're seeing, you know, amazing growth in Austin, uh, Manhattan, um, just in the, in the US to name a few markets where there's a lot of startup activity. But also, you know, it's not uncommon for me to spend my day talking to entrepreneurs in all, you know, all places around the world, uh, Germany and France and the UK and Italy and Spain in Europe, but also um, Singapore and Korea in APAC or Australia. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with founders just this week or last couple of weeks in all those places. Okay, last two questions. What's your favorite thing about your job? My favorite thing about my job is the amazing people I get to work with, both the founders who are energetic and ambitious and have drive and see something that the rest of the world doesn't see and are getting up every morning to go build it. I just love being, you know, helping empower those people to go fulfill on their dreams. It's just, a, it's a wonderful feeling. Um, and also the great people I get to work with at GGB who are all aligned to try to do the same. That's the most fun part of my job. And what's the most challenging part of your job? Building companies is hard. And um, when you're a startup, you know, nobody else is getting up in the morning trying to help you succeed. You're doing it alone. Um, and there's a lot of entropy and there are competitors and there are, you know, lots of reasons why you won't make it. Um, and only maybe one or two reasons why you may make it. And so, you know, working with founders who really understand that that's the devil's bargain they've gotten themselves into um, and, and working like mad to try to, you know, overcome all those obstacles, that's the hard part, but it's fun. Glenn, thank you so much for your time. That was very interesting. Thank you, Jan. Great to be here. I'm Jan Bresky, and you've been listening to Beyond Wall Street. <laughs>